He is risen. He is risen indeed. What a great day. This is a day that, again, we can celebrate uh, from Thursday night where you learned that Jesus had a vision for us. At the Last Supper, he introduced this thing about a new commandment that I give unto you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you. And he did this at a night when he was going to be betrayed. He was going to go into uh, the suffering, and then he was going to be arrested and spit upon and go through the whole, or, the whole ordeal. But there's something about that, that night when he was speaking to his disciples that he said, I have a vision for you. And the vision is that you will be able to handle rejection, abandonment, disappointment, and even crucifixion. The idea that Christ would set that in motion through a communion table, that we are one with him, is just the beginning of this whole Easter celebration. So having Thursday and then go through the Good Friday, we've missed that. Sometimes we have a good Good Friday service, sometimes a Thursday, Monday, Thursday service. But here we are at Sunday. And so to grab everything at once and to repeat things that you know before, I always try to find something that I think, okay, Lord, um, make it fresh. Make it fresh. So it's not just same old, same old. But here's what I want to share with you today. We are not here to celebrate Easter. We're not? Hmm? I thought that was what we're here for. No. You know what the word Easter means? It's the Anglo Saxon goddess, Oestra, or Ostara, or Ostra. This is the goddess of the Wiccans. This is the goddess, the pagan goddess, who is the dawn of light, the equinox goddess who celebrates the coming of spring, and, and the symbols of this goddess and the Anglo Saxon and the Germanic areas was about a fertility. It was about rabbits who get busy during this season and therefore they become symbols as the eggs. Our our whole system of of, um, uh, importing cultural systems and metaphors into the Christian church is exactly what we're talking about in Corinthians. When you have a bleeding, when you have a bleeding of cultures and a bleeding of meanings, you, uh, you tend to forget and if you hear, if you go on Google and you put in Easter, you'll get more Easter bunnies and Easter eggs and chicken peeps and more commercialized. And so that might be all right, but if you have a thousand of those and one point zero one is about Christ, you really open the door to something. We are not here to celebrate Easter because if you don't celebrate her, Kind of like if, if you don't put out cheese in the Celtic religion, Celtic culture and the Anglo-Saxon way back in the 8th century, these spirits will come and not bless you. We don't want anything part. As a matter of fact, this is so, well, I don't know what the word is. It's just so puny when you hear what we're going to get into, because this is amazing. We are here to celebrate the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is not just a mythology that has been passed on by story to story, though a lot of people would have you believe that. We are here to talk about the historical man, God, Jesus Christ. He's the Son of Man, the Son of God. 
And this was a real, a real person in real space and time, but he's not just a, another person. This is God's son. And therefore, if you were to meet with Christ and he was to look at you in your eyes, he would engage you. And you would know there's something different about this man named Jesus that you would have met with one who is not just a man, but he's from above. This is a picture by Del Parsons is uh, one of Susan's favorite pictures. Uh, he is a Mormon artist. And a lot of the pictures you see on the internet about Jesus, he does a very good rendition of a human Jesus. But the Mormons have a different take on Jesus, as a lot of cults do. But I want to go back to the point that it's not mythology, and it's not just conjecture. If you were there at the cross, and you put your finger across that beam that Jesus carried, you would get a splinter, and your finger would bleed. You would feel how heavy that... It's a real world that he walked in. In that, in that time, Jesus was arrested for being a criminal. And the Romans would deal with criminals in three ways. They'd either crucify them by putting them on a cross. They would, uh, they would cremate them and burn them. Or they would decapitate them. These are old Babylonian and Assyrian uh, torture uh, methods that Romans picked up on. And so... Here you've got Jesus. He was a real man who suffered a real death on a real cross in real time. And he really did die. Moses died. Moses died, Deuteronomy 34, he was buried in Moab. Muhammad died. And he was buried in Medina in 632. Confucius died. All these leaders of religion, he died in 479 B.C. in New City, and there's Joseph Smith. He died. He was mobbed and killed in jail in December 1844 in Nouveau, Illinois. But of all these beginning, Abraham, all the religious people that you know that would be famous for religion, no one has ever heard this. This is my beloved son. Hear ye him. And for that reason, Jesus Christ alone was exalted far superior than any other person on earth because they are all dead. But Jesus really died. And at that point of death, his heart stopped, his breathing stopped, his eyes closed. His body began to become cold. He died a real death. And he was buried in a real tomb. Joseph of Arimathea it says this in Matthew. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in a, his own new tomb, which he had hewn out, cut out in the rock, and he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. There was a real tomb. And depending upon the archaeologists that you study, you'll find that there are three different sites, uh, three different sites about the tomb of Christ. You'll see this one, that, and a lot of the pictures have a door where the door frame is kind of vertical. This is the picture that, that Parsons picked out, that the idea that Christ came through a door, and there's a stone before the door. But the idea that there's another uh, a tomb that is like, 
there was a, a door, but it was different because it had a, um, a, not a door, but it was a, where was this? Let me get this for you. Uh, it was a, um, a stone, now there it is. It was a smaller opening, it was a smaller opening, and the stone had to be rolled in front of it. And there's a third place called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And this is the place that they built around the place where they thought Jesus was buried. But the idea is that you're going to see a real stone tomb that was cut out of stone. It had a doorway, and you had to bend over. Listen to these stories from, from John. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. And the two were running together. And the other disciple, John, ran ahead and faster than Peter, and he came to the tomb first. So John's there. And stooping, bending over, and looking in, he saw the linen, linen wrappings lying there, but John didn't go in. Peter caught up, and he ran to the tomb, stooping, bending over, and looking in, and he saw the linen wrappings, linen wrappings only, and he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. So Simon Peter had said, again in John, <clears throat> he said he saw the faith, face cloth, which had been on his head. The face cloth was the one that would wrap so the jaw would be tightened so the mouth wouldn't fall open. But it was, that's what Peter saw. And uh, it was rolled up and it was laid in a place by itself. But he got up and he went. Um, but he was marveling at all that had happened. Same for Mary. Now notice Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. She dared not go in, but... She, as she wept, she stooped, she bent over, and she looked into the tomb. And what did Mary see? Two angels. Two angels in white, sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. It's important to see in real time what must have been going on. In my mind's eye, in my sanctified imagination, you can see people bending over like this pastor in taking a, a tour this is the spot that they think, more people think that this is the tomb of Christ than the other two. But knowing, as Paul would say, that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. So when they looked in the tomb, they would see an empty tomb. Because death is no longer master over him. But it says in Acts that God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in death's power. Those four words, he is not here. Where is he? People speculate. If you go to some of these accommodations like, accommodations like Bart Ehrman, he says this is a story concocted and made up, and he thinks... Because of the group mindset, they made Jesus God. There are a lot of people who think Jesus wasn't God, but he became a God. The Mormons would think Jesus became divine because he was completely obedient to the point of death, and he reached the divine status. The Jehovah Witness says he, he reached that, but he wasn't God because he became a little less than God. But the idea that Jesus was not God, you'll hear. And for that reason, I think the only reasonable thing to do 
is go back to Christ himself, to the original sources. Jesus said, and the Jews understood what he was saying. He was the Messiah. He was God incarnate. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself an equal with God. The only crime that Christ did was to be Christ. He was arrested for his identity. He was penalized for who he was. He was the Messiah. And so at this point, you come to the point of who is this man who's now been dead and now in a tomb and now risen and now stands before us. You go back and ask the question, why is all this happening? Could Jesus have done it some other way? But listen to Jesus thinking and explaining why he did what he did. In John 17, John 12, 27, he says, Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came out of heaven. And no one heard this but Jesus. I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. What assurance the Father gave to the Son at that time of of torment. My soul has become troubled. Didn't he just say to the disciples, just prior in John 14, let not your hearts be troubled? Didn't he just say that? There are two words here. The word... Tarastateo means to be distressed and confused, to be stirred up so much that you have an agitation. There's an inner commotion. There's kind of a, a, I can't get peace. I'm just so preoccupied with this. You know what that's like. It's called worry, anxiety. This is different. There's another word that Jesus would use when he says, my soul has become troubled. It's a different word. It's only used in this one place. And the word is tetarakai, tetaraktai, that's it. Always get that Japanese in there. It means agony. It means anguish. Because something was happening to Jesus that will never, ever happen to you. The whole world of wickedness and evil corruption that was going to face the wrath of God. He was going to embrace the corporate judgment of God. And it was agony. Agony. You'll never get to this point. And therefore, it's a special word. But God raised him up again. Notice what Peter would say, putting an end to the agony. No more would Jesus suffer once for all. And death would not sting him any longer. For it was impossible for death to rule over life. Well, why didn't Jesus just come down from the cross? I mean, why did he have to do all of that? Well, people would say, well, yeah, save yourself, Jesus. I mean, if you're the son of God, get off the cross. He couldn't. And you know why he couldn't? Because Jesus left heaven. He left glory. And he left his divine power back on the throne. 
and he humbled himself, becoming a servant. And that servant was nailed to the cross, and therefore those nails kept the human Jesus so he couldn't move. He had no divine power at that point. At that point, Jesus would say, For this hour I have come, glorify, Father, your name. I have and I will glorify it again. But notice what Jesus said, for this purpose, for this reason, for this cause, I, on account of this, I came to this hour, the very pinnacle of opening up heaven was before Jesus. What was the cause? What was the purpose? What was the reason? Well, there are lots of things. There are lots of things in Scripture that talk about this. First of all, he was going to fulfill prophecy. From the Old Testament to the New Testament, he was going to be the prophet that Moses talked about. And he would fulfill all prophecies. And he would fulfill the law. He was the prophet. But he was more than a prophet. He was a priest. And as a priest, he would see the sacrifices of thousands and thousands of lambs with bloods washing through the temple streets. And yet as a shepherd knowing about sheep, this priest would make a sacrifice and he would become the lamb. He was a prophet. He was a priest because he understood misery. He understood sacrifice. And he understood sin. And therefore, he became the mediator between man and God because he knew that you couldn't stand righteously before God with any kind of sense of holding your head up because you would be ashamed. The wrath of God alone would keep you from lifting your head, but not without a mediator. And therefore, he becomes our advocate, the one who represents us. Jesus didn't know sin until he knew your sin. He knew no sin until he knew your sin. And when Jesus took your sin, something happened. He was separated in his own experience anyway as a man, and he couldn't find God. He says, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? God did not abandon him. The Father's eye was on him at all times. The Spirit of God was groaning for him at all times. And yet Jesus experientially prayed, God, God, why have you been? Take this cup from me. And this time alone is the only time that God said no to the Son. God did not answer this prayer affirmatively because he had to have one who would surrender by choice to be a living sacrifice on his own and Jesus knew that, leaving heaven, leaving the glory, he would take the form of a man, identify with us as men, and therefore represent us as the son of man. And he couldn't find God at that point. He became our savior and king because of that. The prophet, the priest, the mediator became the Messiah. And that Messiah was the blessed one that they'd say, Hosanna, Hosanna, deliver us, save us. And that's what he became. But all of these things are just added to the list of the things, of the purposes that Jesus came. He came for several things. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came that they might have life and have it abundantly, he says in John 10.10. 10. He came to seek the lost because the lost wouldn't seek him. 
He came to put away sin, to destroy that which destroys us. And he knows that without him, people would continue to walk in darkness. And therefore, he brought the light. That was his purpose. But he also wanted to destroy the destroyer. He wanted, he says in Hebrews, that he was going to undo the devil and undo the works. He was going to restore and bear witness to that truth. These things, all this, this man Jesus did, and he came from glory. And as a man, he was constantly, constantly dependent waiting on the Holy Spirit to lead him in the wilderness and to the cross, in the Garden of Gethsemane and through the tomb. He was never alone, never abandoned. But his soul did become troubled. Save me from this hour. Jesus felt that agony. Why? It wasn't just for you and me. There's something else. For this cause I came to this hour. And get this word. I came for glory. Glory. Father, glorify your name. I have glorified it. And as a father would glorify the son, the son would glorify the father. But he prayed that, didn't he? In the priestly prayer in John 17. Father, restore me to that glory that I had with you before I became a man. His own glory and honor relinquished when he left and became a servant. Now it would have to be restored when he entered back into heaven. And this is what he did. He sat down at the right hand of God. Now what is glory? What exactly was that all about? The Greeks thought when you use the word glory, it was about your opinion. It was about your, your thoughts and your reputation. If you were smart, in a few cases, the Greeks would use that word about fame and honor, but it wasn't used that way until Paul and the Christians began to take this word glory, doxa, the doxology, and he would take a special meaning And he would adapt that meaning 160 160 times. In the New Testament alone, the word glory is mentioned. Glory, glorified, glorification. Half of those are by Paul. And so when Paul talks about glory, he talks more than your reputation. He's talking about honor and extending it to power and extending it way beyond to the heavens, and that which is glorious, and that which is holy. You see, glory is ascribed to the very essence of who God is in nature. It doesn't need your recognition. Glory doesn't need to be achieved. It is not something attained or It's not given to him. It's his very majesty. Whether recognized or believed or not, he is who he is. Glory, honor, and power. And expanded to the heavenlies and to the whole realm that God exists. It's the hidden glory. Not everybody sees it. 
And those who don't understand become the natural men. But the glory of this Christ was not seen by all the men. That's why not every man understood. That's why they crucified him. Because if they understood he was the king of glory, they would not have crucified him. But he had to be crucified. In the age to come, what Christ did would reveal a future glory to understand that those who turn to him would be offered the very glory that God gave to his son, he would also give to you. Another thing about glory is glory, this is hard to get a hold of, is unselfish. Glory is not self-preoccupied. Glory is not self-centered. and It's open and it's other-centered. You see, the thing that's so amazing to us is not only with this whole story about the death and the resurrection, the whole story about the ascension, the whole story that you would be invited to participate in glory. God wants to share everything with you and me. And to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, you keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of his glory, because it was given then and it's going to be given again, and it's part of the whole theme of why he came. And you are invited, Paul says, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you, get this, into his kingdom and glory. To get there, you get grace. To get there, you get Jesus. To get there, you get everything. On that day, you will see the resurrection. You'll see all the nations resurrected. You see, resurrection is not just for those who believe. There is a general resurrection where all people will be resurrected and all people will see his glory. It's a Jewish concept beginning in the Old Testament, beginning with Daniel. At that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress as such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time and at that time of your people. Everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. But many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. For those who know Christ, they'll be invited to share at the table of communion the salvation that the Messiah brings. But the resurrection, the general idea, also invites a judgment. But for those who do believe, Christ would say, I am the, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. The beginning. And the cross and the resurrection is just, just the beginning. Because there's more to come. Jürgen Moltmann, he said, the end is much more than the beginning. The true creation is not behind us, but it's ahead of us. God has got more prepared for us. He came from glory. He came from glory to glorify his Father. And to do so would mean this. He would remove all things that, is, that are unglorious. To remove all things that are unrighteous. To move, remove things that are ugly, violent, destructive. He wants to glorify and beautify. Remove that which is evil, sinful, corrupt. Glory may 
so that glory would be manifested in the heaven. There'll be no death in heaven. There'll be no darkness in heaven. There'll be more than that cleansing and more than just forgiveness and more than just salvation. There's more. There's more to glory. You begin with a garden. You end up with a whole city. You begin with a garden that have gates in it. You end up with a whole kingdom with no gates in it. You end up with a whole enhancement of the end times and the eschaton when, the, when that which is promised in the heaven is now breaking into earth and God's going to renew and restore those who have faith. Enhance far more than what you start with. This is the beginning of God's work. And God who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. But when that day comes, you will share a part of his glory and grace. Isn't that wonderful? All that takes place, all that takes place in the future, but you get a foretaste of that now. Because that same spirit who rose Jesus from the dead is the very same spirit that will rise your spirit from unglorious state to a glorious communion with the Father. Oh, Christian, you are so blessed to be invited to share when we don't deserve to be part of it at all. But when Christ, who is raised from the dead, he will give you life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit. So then we're no longer under obligation to live according to the flesh. Because if you're living that way, you're invited to die. If you're invited to die, you're invited to be crucified. If you're invited to be crucified, you're invited for a resurrection. He is not here. And neither are your sins. What is here is the glory, the beauty, the strength, the honor, the purpose, the cause to glorify God. Father, glorify your name. I will and I will do it again and again and again in you and 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 in you. In you. All of this is what Paul would say. We proclaim this risen Christ to every man, teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we can present every man complete. Why is he working? So that they would understand the hope of glory in Christ. It's Christ in you, and that works mightily within you. You see, Christ came for the cause to glorify Christ, to glorify the Father to you. To you. And the Spirit will take that same message and guide you into the message of Christ. The law was given to Moses, but grace, grace was given to you. And glory was given to you. No one has seen God at any time, only the begotten God who's in the bosom of the Father. He has explained his glory. Therefore, as we understand that Jesus, this historical Jesus, came in space and time, and he rose from the dead, and there's a mystery, there's a mystery what takes place in the next 40 days. It's a mystery because he's a resurrected, glorified Lord. Did he go home and sleep in his bed? Didn't say. What did he do with his 40 days? Well, those days were meant to train and help establish the disciples to say, the kingdom is here. 
The kingdom is here, and the Spirit's going to come. And so he spent that time traveling. But notice, he never stayed with his disciples. He just appeared. He just appeared. He didn't abide. He didn't say, there's a mystery what was taking place. And so we have to wait for that part of the story to be revealed later. But for 40 days, he walked the earth, waiting to go home to his father. But those 40 days are like the 40 days of Moses in the wilderness and the 40 days of preparation for his ascension, which we'll come to. But in that time, all those disciples would share in that glory. All those disciples would know it would be Christ in them, the hope of glory. You see, to believe that Jesus died is history. But do you really believe that the Lord of glory would die for you? Amen. If you believe that, that's salvation. He's not here, and neither are our sins. And this is the mystery, to know the riches of the glory among the Gentiles, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, Paul would summarize this whole thing up by saying the Christian life is understanding I do not live for myself. In 2 Corinthians 5.15 he says, He who died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. If Christ died and raised again, was raised again for you, how will God not with him freely give you all things? The kingdom is yours, believer. And that's why Paul would say, I choose to crucify myself. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in that resurrected Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. For that reason, this lamb, sacrificial lamb, has now become the triumphant lamb. He's the victor. He's the king. He's the one who's blessed. He's the one that's finished the whole work. He's the one that glorified his father and who will glorify you because he invites you to share everything with Christ. This is a day of celebration. And so, Christian, just stop and think. If Christ went through the heavens to come to meet with you, to be your Messiah, to be your Savior, to be your King, to be your prophet, to be your priest, to be the one that's going to be your Lord, he did it all for you so that God would be glorified in you. Isn't that wonderful? This God, this Jesus, this Spirit invites you to partake and participate in this journey of glory. People don't think this way. Who thinks this way? His kids do. Believers do. That's what the Bible teaches. Well, for that reason, we are, we are most of all people blessed. He is not here. Neither are your sins. The question is, where are you? If you're abiding in Christ and you believe in Christ, you'll be resurrected to glory. If you, don't have, if you haven't received Christ, you won't be participant. You, you won't see the glory. You won't understand it. But it is the Spirit's work 
to do what Jesus did and glorify Christ to you. And therefore, God is still at work. I will glorify my name again and again and again. Isn't that great? Praise be to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you left the throne of glory and you became like one of us. You died like one of us. You faced death like one of us and that you give us hope in the midst of our suffering. Thank you, Lord, that you would not be held down by death. You would not be held down by human opinion because it was between you and your Father. And Lord, we just come back to you. We don't want to celebrate some puny little thing of Easter. We want to embrace you. So Father, would you now, somehow by the Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead, would you raise us up to yourself and give us this understanding that you want us to share in your glory. And we thank you that you do hear your Son who now ever lives to make that intercession a reality. Lord, we praise you for this. We thank you for all these things. And we thank you in your name for your glory and our growth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.